Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of That Don't Fit. We are here once again with our good friend, Cassie Justy. And um, we are gonna continue our conversation from last time um, about racial issues that have shaped America's history and- uh, Laws in particular. Laws, yeah, not issues. Laws, because she is a lawyer. And so we're gonna ask her questions and we are going to continue on. We're gonna go through, what is it? The beginning of the 20th century-ish until um, up to, to recent laws that we'll talk through. And so I'm going to step aside and let you do what you do, and we will make comments throughout, but Cassie, you can take it away. Great. Sure. Good to have you. (laughs) Good to be here. So last time we talked a bit about abolition of slavery, worked through the Reconstruction era, so we'll pick up now in the Jim Crow era, Mm -hmm. um, which is the period of history where laws were passed that enforced racial segregation even after after slavery had been abolished. Um, so there is a major Supreme Court case that most people have heard of at some point in time called Plessy versus Ferguson. And that is a case that enforced the idea that it was, it was perfectly acceptable to have separate but equal facilities for people of color and white people. Mm. Um, but prior to that decision being made, there were a number of things happening in the country that kind of got us to that point. Um, so after the abolition of slavery, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was passed, and that was a law that guaranteed that African Americans would have equal treatment as it related to public transportation, public accommodation, so hotels, restaurants, we have to be treated equally in those respects. Um, about two years later, the Supreme Court ruled in a case that states actually could not prohibit segregation. Um, as it related to common carriers, so railroads, steamboats, things of that sort. So essentially undoing a large part of that Civil so Rights could, Act. A state could segregate could trains. Re- yep. Okay, yeah. Oh, well. Yep. Yep. Um, that was a case out of Louisiana. But that kicked off a number of cases where states essentially said, and really individuals within states said, okay, If our state prohibits segregation, we're going to sue the state so that it has to be overturned. So that happened across the country, leading to a Supreme Court, a kind of string of Supreme Court cases called the Civil Rights Cases of 1883. It was actually five court cases that had similar fact patterns, and the court decided them all at once. Mm. But essentially, it overturned the Civil Rights Act entirely. So whereas the 14th Amendment had said, you know, all citizens have equal protection under the law, Congress had then come and said, okay, well, then the Civil Rights Act is saying that there has to be fair treatment as it relates to public transportation or public accommodations. Mm -hmm. And when the Supreme Court decided the civil rights cases of 1883, they essentially said, Congress, you don't have the right to affirmatively enforce these rights that are given by the 14th Amendment. So if a state's doing something unconstitutional, if they're doing something that segregates, you can say it's unconstitutional or make a law that kind of remediates that, but you can't affirmatively force states 
to desegregate or to treat people fairly. And that decision was actually decided eight to one. So we had nine justices, eight of them said, yep, we're on board with wow. this. Any feel for why they made that, in terms of the arguments, what, what, why they came down there? So I think if we t go back to the, the Louisiana case that we had talked about a little bit earlier, that case, as it related to public transportation, the argument that the defendant made in that case was that Congress does not have the right to deal with interstate commerce. Gotcha. I'm sorry, that states don't have the right to deal with mm. interstate commerce. So you cannot force, Louisiana as a state can't say, you have to treat blacks and whites on trains, on steamboats equally, because mm. it interferes with interstate commerce, mm -hmm. kind of moving things from one state to the next and business between states. Um, so I'm not sure what the rationale was when they decided those five court cases, mm -hmm. but essentially the Supreme Court was backing up the precedent they had already set yeah. in an earlier case. So between about 1887 and 1892, there were nine states that passed laws that required separation on public transportation or public carriers. Five of those states actually provided criminal fines or imprisonment for passengers who tried to sit in the wrong car or the wrong, the wrong place, essentially. Um, and all of those decisions essentially led us to Plessy versus Ferguson. So Plessy versus Ferguson was, um, again, Louisiana had issued a law called the Separate Car Act that just required segregation on railroad cars. And Plessy versus Ferguson then affirmed that separate but equal standard that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So if we fast forward a few years and jump to 19... 15 or so, mm -hmm. there was a resurgence. So we have... Can, can I just... Yeah. Just, um, you can just help me know if I... We, we touched about this earlier, but um, this idea of separate equal and Jim Crow were somewhat different. Jim Crow laws tended to try to reinforce white supremacy, though it had been, it, it had been outlawed essentially by by the 13th Amendment, but in a sense reinforced that. So it more, had more to do with white supremacy, whereas the segregation laws had to do with separating the races, right? Right. And I would say most of the Jim, what we call Jim Crow laws mm -hmm. are those separation gotcha. laws okay. that require yeah. black people to have their own facility. Yeah. And in practice, while we say separate but equal, we know that those facilities yeah, were sure. nowhere right, near right. equal. Yeah. Yeah. The education system, whatever yeah. facilities were being provided, for people of color yeah. were significantly less yeah. mm -hmm. of a, a less quality than what was being provided to mm -hmm. white individuals at the time. Mm -hmm. Great. Good. Excellent. Um, so you have kind of all of these separate but equal laws and segregation being passed, certainly throughout the South, but also in the North as well. And in the kind of backdrop of that, because those laws are saying states, you do what you want, and we are essentially going to look the other way. Mm -hmm. So there's no prohibitions on that type of behavior. And in fact, it actually encouraged it. Um, but on, kind of in the backdrop of Jim Crow, you have kind of vigilante groups. You have the KKK. You have yeah. mm -hmm. mob lynchings going on in the background that was essentially attacking anyone that tried to resist Jim Crow wow. laws or the mm -hmm. enforcement of Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a resurgence of the, the KKK around 1915. 
that was actually led by someone who was a, a minister in a, a Protestant church. Um, and that's also when you started seeing cross burning. So it was this particular gentleman mm-hmm. that okay. brought, I want to say it happened in Georgia, but I can't quite remember mm-hmm. that kind of created cross burnings as we, as we mm-hmm. know them. Mm-hmm. Can I tell a story but, really quickly? Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'm saying the clan originating out of sort of the, the Confederate culture, including Confederate soldiers in the yep. first generation of it. Uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, other, uh, you know, basically we're going to enforce our culture. Yeah. Um, regardless of the laws. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Although there weren't really many laws prohibiting that anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a movie called Green Fried Tomatoes. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I watched Green Fried Tomatoes when I was like nine. It was very little. I have no business watching that movie. (laughs) Um, but there is a scene in the movie, my sister and I were watching it when my parents were not supervising us and (laughs) there's a scene in the movie and it was the first, I like distinctly remember, I actually talked to my sister today and I was like, do you remember watching green fried tomatoes and the trauma Mm. that it caused us? Mm. There's a scene in the movie where you see the KKK and there's a cross burning and I think they light the home of a black family on fire. Yeah. And I remember as a kid being like, what is, mm. what is this? Because it was my first time like seeing an yeah. image of this, of this group and this, this thing happening. Mm. And we were so scared that we actually like ran upstairs mm. and then like fought for 15 minutes about who had to go downstairs and turn the TV off. And neither of us did it. And we just accepted that we would take the beating the next day mm. for like leaving the TV on and watching a movie we probably weren't supposed to yeah. watch. Wow. Wow. Um, but it's something that's like still to this day, like etched in my brain and like makes me tense up when I even think about it because the image of like a cross burning or things of that mm-hmm. sort obviously have, it is a symbol that's intended to send a message. Yeah. Well, it was a movie produced that time, Birth of a Nation. Yep. That was sort of a celebration of that culture mm. that right. was essentially the first huge blockbuster movie right um built around this idea of of uh clan based racism yep yeah yep um there was actually a court case and i want to say it was decided relatively recently maybe 2003 mm-hmm. where the supreme court decided that a cross burning on its face there was a state that said any a cross burning on its face is a form of intimidation and it's going to be prohibited yeah. and the supreme court actually disagreed with them and hmm. said that a cross burning is not Whoa. prima facie on its face Im- intimidation hmm. which wow is shocking wow yeah wait um, that was decided in 2003 yeah well, that it was not nope Nope. Mm. They said the burden is on the state to prove that it was intended for intimidation purposes as opposed to just assuming that it was. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about, at least when I think about the history of our country as it relates to racial inequality and in some respects the history of Christianity as it relates to racial inequality, Mm. I think I sometimes forget and I think others sometimes forget the interwovenness of those two things Mm -hmm. from time to time. And it's something that even over the past few years, there have been instances where I've gone to share the gospel with a family member Mm -hmm. and the response is the Christianity that does that is not for me, Mm -hmm. Um, which is unfortunate, but it's also a reminder that even if I forget 
the history of these things and how there were aspects of the church or Christians that were involved in some of those things. I think there are many people of color that have not forgotten. Yeah. And I think sometimes the, I don't know, pressure or hyper-focus on how Christians respond or the lack thereof response or what have you, mm-hmm. when there are certain things going on in the world is because the backdrop of that is still in the back of yeah. folks' minds and how we interact over those things, I think, impacts our gospel witness. Yeah. Well, yeah, and not only like things of the past, but things of, of recent history and the kind of general Christian response to those um, Within the black community, there is almost an assumed, like, Christianity is the white man's religion, you right. know? There's, like, a whole apologetics oh, yeah. section that's dedicated to kind of breaking that down and separating. But that's why you have um, <clears throat> different religions like, you know, uh, the black Hebrew Israelites. Like, yeah. they kind of birth out of, like, an anti-white man's religion. Nation of Islam. Yeah. 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 And it's like, we're going to take this back. We're going to mm-hmm. really step into our Africana identity and um, black power and all these different kinds of things. And um, Christians need to be able to engage with that and kind of declaw Christianity mm-hmm. from the yeah. horrors of yeah. its racial passivity and injustice. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also interesting because it, it's, uh, it's the church at times, the uh, white Protestant church at times was involved in things that promoted racist culture and ideology mm-hmm. and then was absent at times when it could have been present right. to to work against those things as well. The civil rights movement, you see an absence, I think, of a lot of the evangelical church at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, and, I, and, it, and that's not our thing. And tending toward, I think kind of call everything liberal let's Mm -hmm. and you know so there's there's a lot of complicated reality when you talk about what does it mean to be we've talked about this in the podcast sort of a theme to be the church that includes both black and white yeah um it's not simply just start let's start now and be that you know we need to deal with where we get here that we have to we have to work hard to make that we got here for a reason. Right. So, yeah. 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 And I think it's helpful, Andy, just as you said, like the the exercise of looking backwards yeah. is an uncomfortable one. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like if we know that the enemy has certain tactics, looking at what he's done in the past to say how do we not fall yeah. prey to those same things is really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I'm, it's uncomfortable for me sitting here because I'm thinking, I... You know, I'm. I, I have in my past those people in my in my history yep. and uh, uh, in part of my culture. And so, when you're you you want to kind of say, you know what? Yeah, well, that was other people. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't us. Yeah. And uh, to identify yourself with, with with an us that has those things is a hard thing to do. For me, it is hard. Yeah. So we can pick back up um, in maybe 1915. So around that time, the Great Migration mm-hmm. was happening. Um, so there were about one million black people that had left the South um, and moved to 
northern cities. So between 1910 and 1920, the population of northern cities had pretty much exploded. A lot of that's because of the the war and and factory jobs opening up, right? And people leaving the south, which is rural and agrarian and limited ability to to build a life mm-hmm. um, up north, thinking there's fresh opportunity and yeah. right, right. So in the North, while in some instances segregation wasn't legalized in the same way that it was in the South, there was still racism, prejudice that was pretty widespread throughout the North. In 1917, the Supreme Court decided a case that declared that racially-based ordinances were unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. That was the case in Louisville. But it's... It's interesting. The case was brought by a white real estate agent against his black client who refused to pay full price for a house that he had purchased because the ordinance in that town actually would not let him live in the house. Like he wouldn't, if he would, if he paid for the house, he would not be allowed to live there by law. So that struck down any local ordinance that was racially discriminatory. It did not have any impact on restrictive covenants. So uh, if you're selling me your house, Andy, the covenants that you put in the contract, because mm-hmm. that's not an ordinance, it's not done at the local level, it's done by, by contract between two people. Yeah. Restrictive covenants that said, you could not sell your house to fill in the blank type of person mm-hmm. were still perfectly oh, wow. legal Yeah. at the time. Um, what year is this? This is, so the court case was in 1917, um, but after that case, there was a rise in restrictive covenants being entered into you because it couldn't be done at the local level through your, your local government. And that led to redlining policies that really kicked off in the 1930s or so. Um, Define redlining. Yes. So redlining is essentially a discriminatory practice where a mortgage lender can deny loans to a certain area or a community based on a variety of factors, but was most often based on the race of the folks that were in that particular community. Let's make sure I understand. The way they got around, you can't do it based on race, is doing it by location. What We don't. We don't underwrite loans in this location, right? But under but that, that location happens to be yeah. So if we let's if we take a step back, yeah. So there were a few federal housing agencies that were put into place mm-hmm. under the New Deal, yeah. So one of the goals of one of these agencies, which is the Homeowners Loan Corporation, mm-hmm. um, was to do a survey of different cities and essentially grade them based on how worthy mm-hmm. they are of investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that the term redlining is because they would literally color code maps based on whether how worthy they were of investment or yeah. issuing loans in this particular area. So... You're, you're right that it was based on location and not necessarily on color, but the actual federal, and these are like federal housing agencies, those documents, yeah. doc, they say on their face that the reason for particular grades was because of the quote unquote infiltration of Negroes. Okay. So it's, it's, so it's still on its yeah. face, even yeah. if it's not yeah. right on the, the face of the document gotcha. itself. Okay. And yeah, and they would... It, Part of that would what would raise lower value would be like unsightly images, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, factories, different things like that would would lower it, and people of color would be in the midst of those things that would lower 
property value. Right. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Right. So they had this color coding system. Um, I think green was for the quote unquote good neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a blue color for areas that were still desirable. Yellow was definitely declining. And then red they deemed hazardous oh, wow. is what it was called. Mm. Um, and the document that explains why certain regions were deemed hazardous is because, like I said, the infiltration of Negroes. Yeah. So the areas that were surrounding those hazardous red areas would be in the definitely declining section just because of their proximity to yeah. a black or a brown or a, a community of color. Yeah. Can I ask you one thing? Sure. Just, you let me know if this is going to take us off topic too much, but I think moving up here, uh, the Great Migration, it introduced, I think, the idea that now it's... You know, the North is a multi-ethnic, you know, there's there's people from Europe, various mig- immigrations from Europe who are all now in the, in, in the big cities, mm-hmm. creating their own neighborhoods. What you didn't have in the South, you sort of had black, white. Right. Right. And, you know, up here, you had in, you know, in the Philadelphia area, um, now you've got Polish neighborhoods, you've got Italian neighborhoods, you've got, you know, various uh, ethnic minorities and blacks coming in. Mm-hmm. So when you, it's not as simple to say black and white at that point, is it? You have to factor in that there's these other ethnic neighborhoods that have, in some sense, come together and they have their own neighborhoods. I mean, Philadelphia is, you know, full of this was a sure. Polish neighborhood. This is so. Uh, maybe you haven't done a lot of thinking on this, but anyway, that how'd that play into the way things played out in the north, where you have. A, a much more ethnically diverse population to begin with. And, and they're dealing with their own, you know, kind of, kind of being the prejudices against them as well. Mm-hmm. But I know that that gets turned on. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, at, during this time, there were a number of laws that were also passed that discriminated against other groups of people, often mm-hmm. immigrants. Yeah. Um, so I think when it comes to kind of the culture of the North and the prejudices that lived in both the North and South, mm-hmm. I think that those would be kind of demonstrated towards black and brown people, but yeah. also a number of different immigrants. Yeah. And I think redlining applied to communities of color generally, yeah. but the documentation that kind of backed up redlining and what, what warranted this yeah. particular color coding was yeah. the presence of black people and my my understanding is that even with um an immigrant community blacks coming in still represented the people we don't want you know i might be i might have come from any european country but what i don't want is blacks moving into my neighborhood yeah i think that was the general sentiment yeah um but i think it is worth it is worth kind of recapping Um, In this same period of time, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act Mm -hmm. that impacted Chinese um, individuals from immigrating to the U.S., and those who did live in the U.S. were barred from obtaining citizenship Mm -hmm. here in the U.S. There was the Dawes Act that, I think it reallocated 90 million acres of land out of Native American ownership. Yeah. And then there was the Geary Act that added more restrictions under the Chinese Exclusion Act, and um, the Immigration Act of 1924 that defined all Asian immigrants as aliens ineligible to get citizenship. 
So yeah. there was certainly a lot going on in that time, and it wasn't just along those white and black mm-hmm. construct yeah. lines mm-hmm. that you talked about. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, redlining. So there are those hazardous neighborhoods. There are the declining neighborhoods that are near them. Um, there were government documents that actually said on their face that a way to preserve value for those neighborhoods that were bordering neighborhoods that were um, comprised primarily of people of color was by erecting a wall to, quote unquote, prevent their spread. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when you look at a practice like redlining and the impact of that, mm-hmm. it's that anyone that's in that, quote unquote, hazardous area is going to have a much more challenging time purchasing a home because they can't get a loan yeah. for a home. And it's going to essentially rid that community of investment Mm -hmm. because if you're a business and you wanted to start a business in one of these areas, you can't get a loan. And we can see how that, how that plays out over time. Um, at the same time, the federal housing authority was subsidizing the construction of white neighborhoods in the suburbs. Um, so refusing to give loans in black and brown neighborhoods, subsidizing the building of new homes in so a migration out of the cities yeah, farther and farther in the suburbs. Right, yeah. right. And the thought was, mm-hmm. like, there's that quote, there goes the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, when you, if a person of color was able to purchase a home in a white neighborhood, the thought yeah. was that the home values are all going to decline. Yeah. And then people would actually start moving out of those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That's what that phrase is? Yeah. Oh. I, actually, I watched a documentary. This was a few years ago, and it was interviewing a couple... And they were saying, you know, we are not, we're not, we don't view ourselves as racist. We don't have any issue with these people, Mm -hmm. but I do care about the value of my home, which means that when they move in, I have to go. Yeah. Um, So even if there was not kind of malice or ill intent in the kind of mass exodus of certain neighborhoods, um, some people probably just viewed it as self-preservation. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you know, the, the mindset it you know allows you to sort of say I'm not doing this because I'm racist. I'm doing this because if I don't sell my house now, it'll be worth less in the future. So now's the best time to sell it and and to buy a house. I can get a new you know all those kind of things. All the economics worked to move people out as well. Right. So you have you know this race laws and economics all coming together to create this you know, sucking out of the city into the suburbs and whole new communities and, you know, and everything that comes with being able to do that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if we jump ahead to the 1950s and 60s, um, home ownership rates... Which also meant decay of... Because those neighborhoods in the cities were older neighborhoods to begin with. The houses are yeah. older. Yep. Um, the infrastructure's older. You get less investment into that, and right. so now you've got deterioration of the housing, got deterioration of the services. Yep. Um, everything kind of starts falling apart, and there's no money going into it. Right. And uh, and that's you know the I think even in the sixties and seventies the decay of this, the the decay of the cities, which is you know, interesting. It leads into now people are going back into the cities. They're reinvesting. They're yep. gentrifying. Gentrification. But mm-hmm. gentrification isn't producing equity 
for the people in the neighborhood. It's forcing them out. Right. So, you know. Right. And if we think about redlining, you know, closer to home, the cities that were redlined that we know of is <clears throat> most parts of Philadelphia, parts of Chester, parts of Camden, parts of Harrisburg. Right. Like, right. we can look at mm-hmm. these cities and say there's a, there's a vast difference between yeah. looking at the city of Chester and looking at Westchester, which is just a few miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, the, the impact of redlining, I think, is still very much felt mm-hmm. today. Mm. Um, but there were a few studies that were done that found that over the last 40 years, the typical homeowner in a neighborhood that had previously been redlined gained four, 52% less property value increase mm. than a homeowner in an area that had not been redlined. So not only was there a delay in folks in those neighborhoods even being able to obtain loans to buy homes, but then the value of those homes are going to appreciate significantly less than in any other neighborhood that didn't have redlining. Um, And then there was another study that just showed that at the start of 2020, there was about 74% of white households that owned their their homes compared to just 44% of black households, Mm -hmm. almost 50% of Hispanic households, and then a little under 56% of any other racial minority Mm -hmm. in terms of homeownership. So if we fast forward a bit to the next kind of big legal milestone, um, we're looking at Brown versus the Board of Education, Mm -hmm. which was the Supreme Court case that decided, and again, that they actually aggregated a few different cases that had similar fact patterns and decided them all at once. but they ruled that separate but equal was unconstitutional. So reversing the decision they had made um, several years before then. And the court actually acknowledged in the opinion that racial separation doesn't just produce unequal education, but it actually does serious psychological harm to black children. I was in uh, Birmingham and uh, the museum, Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, and they have, that was fascinating, they have a, they they have the the uh, the ruling the um, Brown versus Board of Education ruling by the by the uh, Supreme Court and it's signed by every member of the Supreme Court. It's really cool up on the wall just to see that you know they're they're they just all signed it and and uh, but it's interesting. One of the things I want before we get done um, and we don't, uh, I want to talk a bit about the idea of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Not in a way that okay, we're going to wade into it deeply and, and and unpack it and things like that. But I think we're we're talking all around it right yep. now. Um, if you want to label it, where we're talking about this idea that race is built into systems through right. laws and the effect of laws on people, even laws that don't necessarily on their face right. seem to you know, seem to be about race, there are implications to that. And That's I think, right. um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about that at the end, but uh, to me, I think for people like me, the idea of systemic racism is a hard thing because it, it, it screams at us, you are doing this intentionally, uh, and you are you are taking advantage of people. That's the way it's interpreted. Whereas what you're doing, which is very helpful, is saying no. This is a, is a history mm-hmm. of the ways laws are created and the reasons they're created certain ways. The result, and because laws come with 
bureaucracy and things that get created out of them, it creates systems. Right. And those systems, even a, a change in law doesn't change everything immediately. It, it reverberates. And so when we talk about systemic racism, we're just talking about a, a history of laws and a history of, of social responses to laws that, that create a, a tendency for things to function in a system, not just individually. And I think, I think part of, you know, for folks like me, you know, white folks, I, I just, I would love to dismantle the, the, what are you saying when you say sy- mm-hmm. systemic and just yeah. say, well, no, it's just, what we're talking about is what will happen when you pass a law, any law. It creates a system. It affects something, and that reverberates. I'm just kind of off. I was talking to somebody about about the uh, the stimulus checks. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, an accountant, and he was talking about how how messed up the IRS is right now because the stimulus check checks created a lot of work that kept them from doing the work that. They're ordinarily doing, and they, so so they're so far behind. He was saying, "Listen, if you don't mail your return in, you know, you'll never get there." Right. Um, that's a system issue. Mm-hmm. You know, in that case, there wasn't anything. It was actually a good thing they're trying to do, but it creates a system of problems down the road that then need to be dealt with and corrected. In this case, you have things that are clearly designed in, in many cases, but I think there's a lot of laws, probably too, that. At the time, the people who were passing, and even the Supreme Court probably was like, I think this is right, mm-hmm. but no idea, like you said, the effect on, on children by having separate but equal, all those mm-hmm. things, they reverberate over time, and systemic just simply means it's in the system. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's race as an issue embedded in systems that takes a while for, or we have to work to get out. Yeah. So. And you raised a good point, Andy, when you said it's not always on the face of a particular regulation. And it's not just regulations. I think sometimes it can be on the face of a law or it can be in some other policy or just in a practice. There could be some institution that has a practice that is discriminatory. It has racial bias in its impact or in its application. Yeah. Um, So there are instances where we just talked about a few, a number of them, right? Separate but equal is something where it's like this is right on the face of the law. Segregation yeah. was this is written into the the, yeah. the code. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of instances, it could be a type of regulation or a policy that the way that it's applied has a racial bias. Yeah. So if we have one rule for everyone, but we target a particular group when we apply it, yeah, that can be a form of institutionalized yeah. racism or systemic racism. Yeah. I think if you have a rule again that applies to everyone. But we already know as we're writing the rule that it's going to hit one group differently than it's going to hit another yeah. group just by virtue of yeah. the habits of these particular groups of people yeah. um, is another form of institutionalized racism, even if it doesn't say anything about color yeah. on the face of the law. Yeah, a, a couple of illustrations that, you know, one is like urban renewal, which was a response to deteriorating inner city conditions. Mm-hmm. The result, let's tear down the old housing and let's build high rises not recognizing by building high-rises. You're not building communities. Hmm. You're putting people in a high-rise box and forcing them to live in a very confined space to where now that was seen as a a, a disaster uh, for the community because it actually tore down communities by, you know, that approach to housing. That was, let's solve the problem this way. Another one was uh, 
the highway, you know, the interstate highway bills that said we let's 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 create uh, highways throughout the country, mm-hmm. but let's put them in cities in a way they divide the city, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, and now you've got if you're not on the where the highway is best to go, you're in a bad part of the town now, or right. if you're if you're right next to the highway, so all those things. Uh, it, Something that's even that's done on a national level, then as, as it gets applied, it gets applied politically, right? And the political powers come into play, and so, you know, just acknowledging at least that that laws come with implications and complications, mm-hmm. and even good laws, right? Yeah, and uh, and some of these were terrible laws, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, something I enjoy about our listener base is we've got people all on different parts of conversations surrounding race and ethnicity. And uh, I do want to speak for a moment to people who, there's some people who are listening to this saying, yes, I agree with this. This is so helpful. This is great. But there's going to be a section of people who are listening right now that are cringing Mm -hmm. right now at all of these terms that we're using. So, Like me. (laughs) Yes. yes. And, um, you know, and even, you know, the yeah. idea of systemic racism. So there's there's a group of people who hear that and they say, "I'm out." Mm. Yeah. They're just they're just going the route of the culture. They're doing all these things. They're blaming everything on white people. They're doing all this stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. Right. And so what we do is we we adopt and we change language that makes it more palpable. Which in some ways is helpful. Some ways is not. Some people don't even like the term racism anymore because yeah. people are tagging racism to everything. So what do we do? Mm. We call it ethnic partiality. We put it within the language of the confines of scripture because we're not mm. making these things up. Like. Right. The Bible speaks to everything. Like it says, it is sufficient for all things. It says yeah. um, that it speaks and it's going to to tell us yeah. how to act. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it was brilliant in the book of James when when uh, he speaks about partiality as a sin. He doesn't yeah. say, like he doesn't say mm-hmm. this very specific one-dimensional thing. He kind of throws it in a junk drawer mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, so let me take these principles and look through these things and parse through where else this can come through. And so that's why we have terms like ethnic partiality. Partiality mm-hmm. is a sin. There's a type of ethnic partiality mm-hmm. that is present in these laws that are made, meaning that there will be an ethnic group that is affected differently than others. And so what do we do? And sometimes we don't even say systemic racism, we say systemic injustice. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's all these terms to make it more palpable for people. And I just want the listeners who are struggling right now to just take a deep breath yeah. and hear what Cassie just read through, the, the history she just walked through, is what we are talking about when we say systemic racism or systemic yeah. injustice. We're talking and about- And we're using that term because yeah. that's the term that was being used. And yes. That's-, mm-hmm. that's that's what. That's how it was understood. Yeah. So I think you know what we're trying to do, and you're a great point, JT. We're trying to recognize moving forward. We don't want to be, we don't want to be tied to a concept of race that the Bible doesn't allow us to right. move move on with. But we to look at our past, we have to look at it from the standpoint of race because that's how it was understood mm-hmm. by everybody yeah. in the yes. One of those things is like people say race is just a social construct. It's like, yeah. okay, yes, I am affected by the social construct because yeah. that social construct was used to create laws yeah. that right. affected a yeah. specific people that are within that social construct. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's, that's there. Let's deal with it. Let's talk about it. And yeah. um, let's use the Bible as our guide as we interpret these things. Yeah. And like, we can't be afraid of that. We right. can't be afraid yeah. to look at history and yeah. to decipher what's actually happening and to say, no, 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 this is a, a leftist or a liberal viewpoint. It's like, dude, chill. Like, 
if you're standing on the foundation of mm. God's word, yeah. you, can, you can look at something, use discernment, use empathy, use compassion, all the virtues that are in the yeah. Bible that God calls us to, to love yeah. one another. And then we can continue to move forward in these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's why I love you doing this, because I think you bring it in a way that presents it in a way we can wrestle with without feeling like it's either being thrown at us yes. yeah. or uh, or we just have to buy in. You're, mm-hmm. you're just you're just you're keeping it real. And right. So keeping uh, it real. Keeping it one hundred. Yeah. So we just co-opted all that. Now we're going back to That's you. Okay. Can I jump in? I was just going to respond, JT, to something you said. Um, you talked about James and partiality mm-hmm. and how it mm-hmm. kind of puts it in the junk drawer because there are so many different types of partiality. Yeah. And as believers, we know that the heart of man is sinful. Yeah. And we wouldn't disagree with that fact. Yeah. And because the heart of man is sinful, and because we know that we everyone has partialities of different sorts, sure, yeah. and it will come mm-hmm. through in how I make decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If pink is my favorite color, as I go make decisions about what clothes to wear, you're going to see more pink show up in my wardrobe. I mm-hmm. actually don't like wearing pink. Just as I, I like wearing black and neutral colors. <laughs> yeah. Full, full disclosure. Interestingly, just for interestingly, the record. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. just me. That's just me. You know. <laughs> JT is currently wearing a turquoise, a bright yeah, turquoise he's, he's hoodie. Like the turquoise, man. Turquoise. Yes. <laughs> um, but if we think about sin and we know that it impacts the way that we think about things, and the way that we make decisions, it's not shocking right. yeah. that yeah. Our, our legal systems, our policies, the structures of the stuff around us has partiality built into it because it was built yeah. by people and people right. are sinful. And yeah. that's not like... I don't think that's like a hard concept to understand, no. but when we put a name on it, like right. institutionalized yeah. racism, it tends to make us a lot more uncomfortable. But it's yeah. just, it it's does, just yeah. sin being played out. Yes. In the and, it, and we're part we of a culture that tends to think certain ways. And so we're not able to, I mean, we can step outside of what was happening in the, in the early 20th century and sort of say, what was going on with those people? Yep. Well, the reality is this is their world. This is how they've been taught. This is what they know. And so you don't give them a pass, just like you don't give, you don't give the founders a pass for not dealing with slavery. You understand mm-hmm. what they're dealing with, but I think laws come, you know, they come out in, in, in culture, mm-hmm. and it, they reflect culture, and they reflect changes in culture, and they reflect limits in culture. And so yep. I think that, that what we're trying to do is just say, let's just, let's just, let's just keep that in mind. Yeah. So that we can see that we're just as deeply embedded in our culture as anybody else was. And sure. we're not that much different that way. Right. Yeah. And can I just add just one more thing? Is just We are going to give this back to you. Yes, yeah, so I'm so sorry. We're getting all fired up now. <laughs> um, we, we have to have a strong understanding of the doctrine of sin. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's not enter these conversations with a weak doctrine of sin. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, yeah. we, if we do that, and it's, that's how things get excused. That's how things get put to the side. It's like, no... God hates sin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we, apart from Christ, like we are just, we are wretched. Mm-hmm. Like if, if every thought that crossed my mind was acted upon, like right. sin is horrific. Right. And if you get a bunch of sinful people making laws and setting up systems, there are going to be implications that are wicked. Yeah. And that just makes sense. That's, that's what yeah. my Bible yeah. tells me. Yeah. And, and the way it fun- functions, I think, is that, we legislate our idolatries. 
you know, yeah. we, we, whatever we, whatever we desire. Yeah. And I think that's why the whole issue of power struggles is challenging because if you give power to somebody else, they're not going to be a different, they're not going to come at it differently. They're going to be every, every bit as committed to whatever their idolatries are, whatever their false worship is. That's how we, we, that's how we, we want to create our world. We want to create our families that way, mm. you know, based on my, you know, my, my, uh, what I crave, what I desire mm-hmm. dictates what I want put into place. And so all we're talking about is that just ramped up to a, to a cultural natural level. Yep. So, yep. So we're going to, yeah, we're back. We're back. Okay. I mean, we're back backing off. Yeah. <laughs> do, do what you do. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, I will piggyback off one more point. Okay. If that's okay. Now, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what did you, you say? Need, you need to do something that we don't understand because otherwise we'll jump in. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Talking about sin is not helpful because you guys will just continue to contribute I know, your yeah, helpful yeah. theology. Um, I, it is, it's always interesting to me, I think, when I have conversations with anyone that struggles to see mm-hmm. partiality or racism yeah. played out today because of JT, what you just talked about, the fact that like scripture is still true and scripture yeah. talks about these yeah. things. Scripture mm-hmm. talks about partiality. It talks about greed. It talks about pride. It talks about the crave for power mm-hmm. and ethnic partiality or racism is just those things being played out in different right. facets. Yeah. Um, but it's also like, in the same way, like God has not changed over time. Mm-hmm. The enemy has not changed over time. Yeah. So it's not like he would just wake up one day and say like, oh, that trick used to work, but I'm going to leave that one alone now. Like mm-hmm. yeah. he would just continue to play the same old cards and sometimes we continue to pick them up. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. For real. He ain't that smart. <laughs> Good, but he ain't smart. We ain't that smart. <laughs> but Jesus is. Yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Okay. Do you want to pick up on the civil rights? Civil rights, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if we think about the civil... Was that a yawn? That was a yawn. Okay. I was trying to not... I was like, is he going to sneeze? Yeah. I'm here. I'm, I'm Okay, yes. Thank okay. you. I just have to not look at JT the entire time. Because every time... There was a water bottle thing, and then the next time he went to pick up the I, I water know. bottle, so he did it loud. watching <laughs> Grant. And I was like... As you're trying to pay attention to what you're talking about. Okay. Civil rights. Civil rights. Um, So we talked about Brown versus Board of Education, which was 1954, that ended racial segregation as we know it. But again, we still have all of these racial biases and this prejudice being walked out in life. Um, in 1955, there was the case of Emmett Till, who, um, was a 14 year old boy that was murdered. So he's from Chicago and his, he had two working parents. They sent him to visit relatives for the summer in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And, um, he had been out with some friends. I think they went to a store and we don't know exactly what happened, but the, it was reported that he had whistled at a white woman or touched the hand of a white woman or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and then left with his friends, went back to his house, didn't say anything to the, the uncle that he was staying with about whatever had happened at the store. Early the next morning, I want to say, I believe it was the cashier's husband or cashier's brother-in-law. 
could probably clarify that if it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the cashier's husband and his half-brother. Mm-hmm. So they broke into Emmett Till's family member's home. Mm-hmm. They abducted him. The two beat him severely. They gouged out one of his eyes. Mm-hmm. They brought him to the bank of a river, um, killed him with a single gunshot to the head, and then they tied him with barbed wire to a large metal fan and then threw his body into the river. So the case of Emmett Till got a lot of attraction, got a lot of attention, and Mm -hmm. uh, I think Jet Magazine actually had published a photo of his face that's Mm -hmm. really well known because it's completely unrecognizable from Mm -hmm. the beating. Um, And actually the only way that they recognized that it was him is because he was wearing a monogram ring that his dad gave him. Um, but so there was a trial where those two men were being prosecuted for, for his murder. Emmett Till's uncle testified against the two men and said, yes, this is the, these are the men that came into my home. I saw them take my nephew. The jury was an all white, all male jury. Cause mm-hmm. at the time women and blacks still could not testify on juries and the jury acquitted him of all charges. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something I think I look back on in hindsight and say like, how on earth did Mm -hmm. that happen? Um, but I think, and this is why I think looking through the lens of history can be helpful when Mm -hmm. you look at something that happened back then and you see things that look any bit similar now in terms of something happening and there being an acquittal and folks feeling like there's a lack of justice there. It's not just this incident. It's the fact mm-hmm. that we have a history of that happening over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And when there, it seems like there's no earthly justice in that way, it's, I think it has like a, a build-on mm-hmm. effect. So the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, so about 10 years later. Um, and there were a series of events that happened that led up to the passing of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so the 15th Amendment, when that was ratified... It prohibited states from denying male citizens the right to vote on the basis of color or race or nationality or the basis of their previous condition of servitude. So you couldn't, you couldn't say, um, I'm not going to allow people that used to be slaves to vote even though you don't use the color black or brown on the face of the law. So mm-hmm. it was trying to be more all-encompassing that way. After the 15th Amendment passed, there were a number of states that would just put up barriers to black, to black people being able to vote. So there were states that had essentially election officials that would tell black voters that it was a different time, it was a different place, it was a different this, it was a different that, to essentially just divert them to mm-hmm. other places. Um, there were states that enacted literacy tests So a majority of folks coming out of slavery could not read. Um, So often forced them to take literary tests, literacy tests, which they sometimes failed. And then there were actually some Southern states where there are accounts of black voters being forced to recite the entire constitution, which I can't do. (laughs) Okay. Um, Or to explain some of the most complex provisions of various Mm -hmm. state laws in order Mm. to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, those same tasks were not given to their their white counterparts that were trying to vote. And in some cases, there were black people with college degrees that were turned away from Mm. voting because they couldn't accomplish whatever the task um, 
they were given were. Poll taxes are part of that too. Yep. 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 Um, so in March of 1965, there was the march from Selma to Montgomery yeah. that I think we often think of. There's like a few iconic pictures that go along with that. And there were state troopers during that march that told the black marchers, black protesters, that they had to turn back. Mm -hmm. They refused and they responded by beating them with nightsticks and tear gas and whips and all kinds of things. Um, so the Voting Rights Act was essentially banning literacy tests, some of those poll taxes, and a, a bunch of other things that states had put into place to try and suppress black voters from getting to the polls and actually casting their, mm -hmm. their votes. If we fast forward a few years, uh, President Nixon was in office and he officially declared what he called the war on drugs. Um, and he stated that drug abuse was quote unquote public enemy number one. So prior to that time, the U.S. had gone through a few cycles of legalizing recreational drug use, putting taxes on recreational drugs, things of the sort. And there were several states that had allowed recreational drug use of different sorts. Nixon went on to create the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, um, which is a task force that's focused on prosecuting drug crimes, essentially. And I think we had talked about when we had sat down together a few weeks ago, the fact that laws can be passed and look benevolent on their face and yeah. have a very mm -hmm. real and discriminatory impact sometimes completely unintentionally and sometimes it, it was more mm. intentionally. But the war on drugs is a, a great example of that because a lot of the provisions that were passed under the war on drugs seemed benevolent in that you, you want to combat drug uh, abuse yeah. and you yeah. want to protect the public health and you want to take care of people and things of the sort. Um, but well, there's- A lot of the impetus for that had to do with what was going on in the 60s in terms of sure. the youth culture yep. and the drug use. That was, you know, the political mindset was as much about that. It's about, and again, you've got Nixon and his opposition to any war. You know, all those kind of things come into play yep. that create this momentum to, to deal with it. That's right. So there was someone on Nixon's team. He was his domestic policy chief who was actually quoted... I don't know why people say things in meetings where people will write them down, but he was actually quoted saying that the Nixon campaign had two enemies, quote, the anti-left, the anti-war left and black people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Another quote from a meeting, he said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Mm -hmm. Whoa. That's why I said, why, why do you say that in a meeting? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. But, um, so we, and obviously, drug use. I do not condone drug use of any. I don't condone drug use. <laughs> you you heard use. it here, folks. <laughs> 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 but... We do see a pattern both through the Reconstruction Era and some of the laws that we saw criminalizing particular behavior, and I think mm. here as well, that there were laws that were very specific and targeted in their intent 
mm-hmm. in terms of criminalizing this behavior and knowing exactly what the impact would yeah. be for particular communities. Yeah. So there was a period in the mid 1970s um, when the war on drugs took a bit of a, a hiatus under Jimmy Carter, but then Ronald Reagan was elected in 1981 and he reinforced and expanded a lot of Nixon's war on drug policies. So in 1982, he officially announced his war on drugs. And there was a survey that showed that at the time, less than 2% of Americans viewed drugs as a pressing issue or as the most Mm -hmm. pressing issue at the time. So his kind of refocus on drugs under his regime of the the war on drugs passed severe penalties for drug-related crimes and then Congress and state legislatures um, followed suit. So it led to mass incarceration for nonviolent drug crimes. Mm-hmm. So a few years later, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which established mandatory minimum prison sentences um, for certain drug laws. And, or so, I'm sorry, certain drug offenses. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that was heavily criticized. One, because I think there were there were mixed understandings of what the intent behind Mm -hmm. those laws were, um, but also because it allocated longer prison sentences for offenses that involved the same drug, but based on which population it's used by, the sentences were different. So like for that one, it would be like crack and cocaine, right? Right. Yeah. So crack being in more poor rural or poorer communities, cocaine more of the high level Mm-hmm. ones of the access that minorities would not typically be doing. Right. But yeah. literally the same drug. Literally the same drug. Right. Mm-hmm. So crack cocaine, which is was associated more with poor communities, like you said, JT, yeah. for five grams of crack cocaine, it automatically triggered a five-year prison sentence. That's the mandatory minimum. Mm-hmm. And then there's discretion to go above and beyond. Yeah. It took 500 grams of powder cocaine to get the same sentence. Whoa. And while I don't, I'm not an expert in drugs and what mm. they weigh, I know the difference between five and 500 is yeah. massive. Wow. So those are the types of, wow. of policies that were enacted. And Andy, going back to what you were saying, nothing about race on the law, on, sure. the, on the face of that law, but we can tell, yeah. JT, as you just said, because of the use of particular drugs in different neighborhoods, that the impact is gonna be very, very, very different. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the I mean, it's interesting. The hard thing about crack is the the addictive nature of crack is so much more significant than mm. cocaine. I mean, really, mm. brain studies show first use can create an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the fear of crack in neighborhoods was huge because mm. when it came in, it it it, it was Ravaged inexpensive and it you know and it went everywhere. Yep. Um, I think one of the things that politically what was driving it was this is a way for us to get at crime. It wasn't about drugs. It was about, I mean, it was about drugs, but it, but it's, we're trying to, we're trying to deal with a crime problem mm-hmm. with the idea that the drugs are creating all manner of criminal activity, both in the dealing of them and in the people trying to get them. Mm-hmm. So there was a way in a sense, I think the, I mean, I was, I was voting back then, um, and in the in the in the eighties, and the 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 fear issue driving it was crime. Yeah, wasn't drugs themselves. It was 
you know, for the average person, it was, you know, the, the uptick in crime. Mm-hmm. So that's what got that. That's what created the political motivation. Sure. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you might imagine, the policies led to a huge right. uptick in yep. incarcerations. Yeah. Um, so in 1980, there were about 50,000 incarcerations for nonviolent drug offenses. 1997, there was about 400,000. Mm. Again, very large. There's a, it's a huge leap there. What were the two years? Sorry, say that again. Um, 1980 and 1997, so 17 Jeez. year difference. Yep. Um, and in 2014, nearly half of the people that were serving time in federal prisons were there for some type of drug related offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so not an, not an insignificant impact Mm -hmm. at the same time, there was a pretty large shift in the allocation of federal spending and funding from, um, kind of preventative measures in the education space to, to enforcement Mm -hmm. of drug crimes. So just a quick stat in between 1980 and 19, 1980 and 1984, FBI anti-drug funding increased from eight million to ninety-five million. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and then agencies that were responsible, like I said, for drug treatment, prevention, education, had their funding significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. So the National Institute on Drug Abuse was reduced from receiving two hundred and seventy-four million dollars to fifty-seven million dollars in a span of three years. Wow. Yeah. Um, at the same time funds that were anti-drug funds that were allocated previously to the Department of Education was cut from 14 million to $3 million. Mm. And just to kind of bring things to the, the present, I guess, as it relates to the impact of those, those mandatory minimum sentences, those stayed in place from when they were passed in the 1980s until 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act. So that reduced the discrepancy in sentencing for crack and cocaine and a number of other drugs. Um, But even that law didn't automatically apply retroactively. Mm -hmm. So if you were incarcerated Mm -hmm. under whatever the law was in 1991, per se, you're still serving out that prison sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, they They later made some amendments so that if you met a certain criteria, you could petition a court to adjust your sentencing. But even still, looking at how that's applied across different states and counties, the, the ratio of courts actually granting those motions varies wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are plenty of counties where the majority of those are denied. Yeah. So you don't even get the chance to go back in front of a judge and have it reexamined. Mm-hmm. So around the same time, you have a pretty significant uptick in prison privatization. So Mm -hmm. more private prisons, essentially. So a private prison, you can have a a prison that is state and kind of or federal run. It's run Mm -hmm. by the actual government. Or you can have a prison that's private, sometimes for profit. Some of them are traded on the stock market. Some of them aren't. Um, And they are in the business of running prisons. but I think some of the challenges, or at least one of the criticisms of the private prison system is that it adds a financial incentive when we think about corrections and rehabilitation mm. of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a number of private prisons that have minimum occupancy clauses in their 
contracts. So whenever you're working with the government, you'd have to enter some type of contract with them. The private prison, when contracting with the federal or the state government, have provisions within their contract that require the prison to be filled to a certain capacity. So it has to be 90% filled, the beds Mm -hmm. in this particular prison. And if you do not hit the minimum occupancy, there's actually fines that the state or the federal government has to pay to the private prison. There's a number of states, I want to say it's like Arizona or Nevada, I can't remember, one of the states out there Mm -hmm. that has paid millions of dollars in fines over Mm -hmm. the years for not hitting the minimum occupancy clauses. Mm -hmm. And there was a study that was done a few years ago, maybe 2015 or so, that showed that like 65% of private prison contracts have those types of, have that type of language in it. 65. Okay. Yeah. Um... So those are, that's happening in the kind of backdrop of mm-hmm. the war on drugs and the war on crime. Wow. Then in 1989, President Bush is in office, and he had also kind of taken a similar stance in characterizing drug use as the most pressing problem in the nation. Mm-hmm. Then there was the 1994 crime bill, which was enacted under President Clinton. And Andy, you had mentioned earlier, just like politicians and kind of all of the things that are going on in the background of the political sphere. Sure, yeah. And President Clinton had actually vowed that he would never permit any Republican to be perceived as tougher on crime than he was. Mm -hmm. Um, So once he was elected, he endorsed the three strikes and you're out um, stance. So it essentially created dozens of new federal capital crimes and mandated life sentences for three strike offenders. So Mm -hmm. if it's your third time for whatever the particular offense was, um, you would be in jail for the rest of your life. And a number of the provisions under kind of the 1994 crime bill and that that whole package of laws allocated, it shifted the allocation of funding from public housing to the building of prisons, yeah. which I think people are people look at and say, what's the motivation behind that and, and some of those things mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the closer it gets to the, you know, time-wise to the present, the more we feel. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to, you know, redlining is a historic thing that we feel implications of. Yep. Criminal uh, justice issues are, uh, we, we feel them very much. We see them in our news feeds. We see, we, we, we understand it. So I think the harder thing, I think, is for us to grapple with what do we, what do, you, what do, we do with that? How do we understand that? And one of the things I want to make sure people are listening, um, I'm not going to pontificate on meanings of things so close to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm trying to wrestle through them. I don't, it's very easy to say, well, it's the politicians. Well, but politicians are how we run our country. And that's what they do. And for better or for worse, we get laws uh because we have people who are who are elected and and they're part of a system that you know we have centers in it and so I, I think for us you know what I come away with is is I don't want to I, I want to wrestle with these things as a believer mm-hmm. um, as a Christian as a white man so that I don't accept simple answers because I think that's what tends to get fed me. Hmm. Here's a simple answer to this problem. Mm-hmm. 
vote for me and you'll get it. Yep. And I think that what I want to do is I want to say, you know, as a believer living in a world that that is uh, is it's it's infected through and through with sin. Common grace is the ability to not have sin run rampant. Yeah. But that's what we're counting on. We're not counting on legislation to fix. We're counting on the the common grace of God to preserve and 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 uphold a, a sinful culture until the intervening grace of God comes and and uh, and Jesus comes with it. And so yeah. I think that you know, for me, and this, if I'm advocating anything from people listening to this, even if you're struggling like I am with hearing things that that are part of your political orientation, is to is to not react. You know, it's to say, okay, I need to learn. I need to, I need to discern biblically what's going on in my culture and what is being offered to me as answers to what I perceive to be the needs. Yeah, those are the things that are hard to do because that's what we're giving. Every new administration does that. New answers to age-old problems. Yep. Mm. How do I handle that? And what I don't want to do is go back and do. You know the history of the mistakes in history, and say we can solve that by eliminating this group of people from our lives, mm-hmm. which is I think the tendency we want to do. So, and that happens in abortion. It happens in a lot of places. Yeah. So I just want to be, you know, I want to be somebody who who enters my culture as a citizen of the kingdom. Yeah. You know, and living in this wor- world as, as a citizen of our country. Recognizing our history is both an amazing thing and a problematic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And I think in the same vein, understanding history, understanding the impact that it's had, and as a person of color, like JT, I don't know if you wrestled with this at all, but not over-identifying with mm-hmm. the brokenness of mm-hmm. what has happened right. in the United States or what's happened in the world and how that's yeah. impacted yeah. us. Because we're called to associate primarily with who we are in Christ and what he's mm-hmm. called us to yeah. and what he's done for us. Yeah. Um, so I think the kind of flip side temptation is to over associate or over identify mm. in that way. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's good. So man, can you uh, bring us home? Yes. In prayer? Let's pray. <laughs> that's, that's, yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, mm-hmm. you are our sovereign God. You are our good God. And you are one who cares for his people so well. Mm-hmm. Um, we recognize that. We see that, Lord. But we uh, see that we live in a broken world, a sinful world. And so uh, we ask, come, Lord Jesus. Um, we are ready to see you. We are ready to um, <laughs> to be in a place where there are no more tears, to be in a place yeah. where there is no more suffering. Yes. Lord, but we're here now. And so we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to uh, live as kingdom citizens, to make change where we can, to live lives that point people to the glories of the cross, that in spite of all these things that have happened, we are people who have a defiant and rebellious hope um, because our hope will not shift because our hope is in the finished work of Christ and that work will not be undone. Mm-hmm. We are your sons and daughters. We are um, co-heirs with Christ because of the gospel that we believe. And so that is where our hope is. And so Lord, empower us to continue to uh, speak uh, justice, continue to uh, fight for these things and to continue to do so in a way that exhibits your grace um, 
towards the undeserving, Lord. We love you and are grateful for uh, your care of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Cassie Justine. Mm -hmm. You have served us well. Mm -hmm.